This week on the Rail Splitter podcast, we are wrapping up our coverage of Gettysburg. So we are going to be talking about day three and Pickett's Charge. Welcome to the Rail Splitter Podcast, the Abraham Lincoln Podcast. I'm your co-host, Mary, and joining me tonight is Rail Splitter Nick. What up, people? Taking a break from and, watching Stranger Things for a little bit. And, By the way, it's Never Ending Story. Great song. <laughs> best moment of the entire series. I've never seen it before. Yeah. I made um, I made my husband turn it off the other night for the All-Star Game. <laughs> That's ridiculous. Like, yeah, I know. And also joining us tonight is Rail Spitter Jeremy. Hello, everyone. It's great to be back and to see my lovely fellow Rail Splitters. <laughs> um, super happy to be back. And I just wanted to thank Mary, Rail Splitter Mary, and Rail Splitter Nick for uh, taking on the, the podcast while I um, was working on some stuff. Uh, but I'm happy to be back. So, what's up, Rail Splitter Nation? We Who are, are you? <laughs> Who are you? What are you? Can you remember me from episode 70-ish? <laughs> no, it's awesome to have you back. And like I'm glad we're all back recording this episode together. And we are going to do an episode where it's kind of be going to be like catch up for all of us. Um, but tonight we are looking at day three of Gettysburg just to wrap up our coverage of that. Uh, but to um, start things off, we always yeah, like... Yeah, well, real quick, I just wanted to... We'll talk about, like, what I've been up to and all that stuff <laughs> in our catch-up episode, which is next week. Um, but uh, I know people have been wondering. I've been hard at work on my side project, which is Fillmore Knowledge, the the Miller Fillmore podcast, which is kind of a little... Pet, <laughs> I'm just kidding. I didn't... That's not what I was doing. I was not creating a Miller Fillmore podcast. <laughs> At the Zero Sorry. Star podcast. Zero I've been star. sitting on that joke for months. <laughs> Man, you would I'd I'd have to take you out if you started to film more. Actually, I wouldn't have to because that'd just be sorry and embarrassing. Wouldn't it be hilarious yeah, if it became more popular than ours, though? It, it never could. It's a sister or a sibling project, so that doesn't exist. So it's an offshoot of the Rail Spitter podcast. There you go. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. I actually secretly run a Fillmore one. Good, because you're secretly... A, I've been doing it for years. This is all just a disguise. You're secretly his <laughs> biggest fan, right? Oh, yeah. I've read all the book written about him. <laughs> all the book. All the book. I didn't even bother finding out what his nickname was to say that that's what I named the podcast. I just tried to make a pun on Fillmore. <laughs> I don't think he has a nickname. You'd think Miller would be a nickname, because who the hell would actually have that as a name? It's probably Millie. Was it the accidental president? I think... For yeah. some reason, that's ringing a bell. Yeah, so you yeah, could have called yeah. it the Accidental Podcast. That yeah. would have been clever. That would have been better. Pretend I said that. Yeah, the if ac- that's actually his nickname. But the Accidental Podcast. Yeah, we can go with that. The Accidental Podcast. I think podcast. it is because <laughs> like he gets in because of a death. So The anniversary nobody. of which was recently, I think. Yeah, I saw some stupid film or stuff floating around there in the Facebook Yeah, chat. thanks to me. <laughs> yeah. Just for I think anyway. the accidental president is just any vice president who becomes president due to a death, but yes, or resignation, I suppose. Yes, 
But well, actually, you, man, yeah, you can make a podcast on the eight presidents who've done that called the Accidental Podcast. Anyway, sorry, I've already derailed it. And I've only been on for a couple minutes. That's what we're about at Rail Splitter Podcast. <laughs> so anyway. Complete derailment yeah. with off-topic banter. So our news story tonight is um, one's called Abraham Lincoln Goes to New York and Gets on Good Morning America. And it's actually uh, Lincoln portrayer Fritz Klein, who we've had him on the show, haven't we? I Not when I was no, no, in someone. town. No, well, that, not Fritz. No, not Fritz. There's another guy, right? Yeah. yeah. That, Who's the guy? That down was, uh, yeah, his first name was Dan. Um, That's right. I'll look it up. Yeah, he was awesome. Yeah. But anyway, Fritz is a Lincoln portrayer, I think mainly out of Springfield. And um, anyway, he was in New York City this past week, and he managed to get on Good Morning America. And I just thought that was a really feel good, feel-good news story, and um, one of the hosts of Good Morning America said, we cannot lie, Abe Lincoln is here in Times Square. And there's like this, <laughs> I'll tweet out the article later. And But yeah, there's this picture of Fritz and one of the hosts of Good Morning America. And um, she said that he's a spitting image of um, Abraham Lincoln and he's from Springfield, Illinois. So nice feel-good news story. It's nice to see that he's, you know, kind of got some national coverage now because I think he's quite a good portrayer of Lincoln. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's uh, go ahead, Nick. No, you're good. Uh, it's it's interesting, or I, I kind of was uh, had a little moment where I was like, I think I'm uh, pretty entrenched in my Lincoln nerddom when like I recognize Lincoln presenters, um, but he's uh, they have a thing in Springfield where kids can do like kind of a scavenger hunt type thing where it's called like looking for I think it's it's not looking for Lincoln, but uh, you get like little stamps of top hats, but. Um, he's the he's the Lincoln presenter that's on the signage for that. So, whenever you're at a site in Springfield and you see a uh, kind of like a kind of like an Andy Warhol type styled mm-hmm. uh, picture of that uh, this particular Lincoln presenter, you can get a stamp there. So, um, but yeah, I, I I think my my nerddom is to the point where I recognize I recognize him right away. He's a great Lincoln. There, you know, many of them are very very good. But um, yeah, it was kind of cool to recognize him. Yeah, I'm getting to the point where I can recognize some of them too, like especially uh, like George Buss and mm-hmm. Fritz Klein, and there's a few others out there too that I'm like, oh yeah, that's who that is. Wait, they're, it's not Abraham Lincoln, <laughs> right? They're not all ghosts of Abraham Lincoln. Shh, Jeremy, don't tell him that. <laughs> <laughs> Randy Duncan was on the show. Sorry, that's I it. told you, Dan. Yes. I meant Randy Duncan. Yes. Yeah, sorry, Randy. That's it. Um, yes. Who is a very talented Lincoln presenter, and he um, he was one where he was on Conan once. So, wow. uh, but Randy Duncan, very very friendly person, very um, talented Lincoln presenter, and he he has been on the show, um, and we also talked to him at the Lincoln Presenter Conference that Nick and I went to about a year ago. Uh, so yeah, Randy. That's, I knew I knew the name was just escaping me, but Randy Duncan and uh, Fritz is it Fritz Klein? Yes. Yeah, um, he's. Um, he and George Buss, I think, are the pretty pretty well known Lincoln presenters. Yeah, and uh, they're to be sure. I've met George before, and he is an incredibly nice man. Mm-hmm. He's from Freeport, Illinois. Yes, he is. Yeah, I think we might have to contact them for our 100th episode too. I think that would be a great idea. Yeah. I'm Team Randy, Randy Duncan, 100th episode. What now? We're picking sides. <laughs> It's, yeah, it makes it more interesting then. 
I, I don't think we can do enough content on Lincoln presenters because there's like, there's some that, I mean, there's so many different styles that strive for accuracy. Some of them are a little bit of a caricature in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them just kind of do it for the love of it. And it's, you know, accuracy is not a priority. It's more about like talking to kids and stuff. So that's definitely an interesting and, and really um, important part of Lincolnia, I believe. Yeah. Randy Duncan is my first and only. That's all I'm going to say. First and only. Unless you're a Lincoln presenter who we're going to have on the show in future episodes. Yeah, and then all of a sudden, oh, you're my favorite. <laughs> After Randy Duncan, be Randy Duncan was my first, and that's where my loyalty lies. I'll talk <laughs> to other ones. Don't get me wrong. But in here, like, you're not as good as Randy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's it. You're not as good as Randy. There's only one true Lincoln, and that's Randy. Well, Randy does it really, this way. <laughs> Randy, if you listen to the show, I'm sorry <laughs> if I'm creeping you out, man. So uh, I apologize. Nick will be saying that. Well, Randy does it this way. <laughs> <laughs> this could really start to spiral out of control. It could. Anyway, so... Today we're talking about day three of Gettysburg. We're mainly going to be focusing on Pickett's Charge. Um, so to begin... Lee's plan. The original plan was to have renewed attacks on the Union flanks as well as at Culp's Hill. But what happens at Culp's Hill, which we'll discuss in a couple minutes, will force Lee to change his plans. His new plan is going to be an attack on the center of the Union line at Cemetery Ridge because he thinks that um, Meade has gone to strengthen the flanks, so the right and left flank, and that would leave the center of the Union line vulnerable. Um, so prior to attacking the center of the Union line, Lee is going to have an artillery bombardment to weaken them even further, and his ultimate goal is Cemetery Hill. Now, Meade's plan, as we discussed in day two, was um, it was decided at the Council of War the night before that the Union would hold their positions where they were and await attack by Lee. And then during, like after that meeting was over, Meade pulled General John Gibbon aside, who was um, he was in charge of some of the artillery. And he tells Gibbon, and this is, turns out to be correct, that Lee is going to concentrate most of his fire at the Union Center, right where Gibbon will be with Hancock's Second Corps. Um, so while there's a few different battles that are happening on day three, the major and most famous event that we're going to be talking about in this episode is Pickett's Charge. But what else was happening that day was Culp's Hill, which is actually the reason why Pickett's Charge ends up happening. Um, there's an artillery bombardment there against the Confederates, and this is done early in the morning by the Army of the Potomac. And the Union takes back the, de- they're aiming to take back the defensive works on the lower slopes that the Confederates had managed to take the day before. And the Confederates do attack, but by 11 a.m., the Union has the hill completely back. And fans, uh, one of the officers there, says the Union line was intact and held more strongly than before. So this is why Lee has to change his original plan. Yeah, I mean, the Union had a pretty good defensive position in Culp's Hill mm-hmm. and that crazy terrain that's out there. Um, so they didn't really have much of a chance, no. I don't think, in my opinion. No. Yeah, I, I always find that interesting, too, because um, I think very few times, you know, you get to that point where there's these big, long campaigns and there's, skirmishes and tiny battles and and ultimately for the major battles you end up with tens of thousands of troops on both sides like very rarely is would it be where 
Lee at that point could have said like their position is just too strong. Mm-hmm. We're just going to abandon our position, you know, and it would have, you know, what, what would the narrative of Garrett Gettysburg have been if, if that was really what he had decided, um, you know, I don't know, Mary, you probably could think better than I can, but like, I don't know if there's any real instances in the war where it was like, you have these two gigantic forces and at the beginning of a day where it's like, you know what, like their, their position is too strong. I'm thinking of Fredericksburg as a good example. that jumps out where it's like, that should have happened at Fredericksburg. Like, yeah, there's a lot of battles, tiny battles leading up to that. And then you get to Fredericksburg and, and that's when, when the two sides were in positions and they really, you know, the union really should have said like their position is too strong. Yeah. We need to keep moving, you know, keep moving on or, or redesign this campaign or something. Um, and maybe that's what those small battles are, where it's like, they keep kind of moving, moving, mm-hmm. moving. And then this is where we decide the battle is going to be. Gettysburg, I think is a little bit unique where it's the third day of the battle. Yeah. So can Lee really say they're, they're, They've got the high ground as, you know, yeah, the high you know, ground. <laughs> exactly. They've got the high ground. These hills are too tough. Like we're not going to be able to get them with a forward advance and just retreat or move or try to flank them or something. And to see if they, you know, maybe Meade gives up that advantage for trying to take out the army. Who knows? But I think Nick, you make a good point where it's like, is, is it, is it a genius stroke by Meade or is it really the terrain and where they were that, that ended up being the deciding factor, at least at the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, there's other instances in the civil war where that happens too. like the battle of Franklin, Tennessee is, is very similar to Pickett's charge. And that that's John Bell hood sending out his troops against Thomas. And there's no chance. Like they were absolutely decimated, very similar circumstances. So I don't know what goes, you know, through their minds when they're thinking, Oh, I can take this. I can do this. But yeah, just what happens here is, you know, I think it was partly terrain, partly mead, I think, and just, just the Union troops and and the way they fought, um, you know, against the Confederates that day. And there's also, like, these cavalry battles, too, going on east and south of Gettysburg that they don't really get talked about too much, um, but it's, like, Jeb Stewart, who's finally shown up, and uh, the Confederate side of things. And then uh, Kilpatrick and I believe Custer is there too. So there's these cavalry battles waging as well. But the main thing that gets talked about at Gettysburg, and we're going to take that route as well, is Pickett's Charge. Um, because it's become, as Nick and I were discussing before the show, it's become kind of like this folklore thing with Gettysburg and where a lot of the myths come out of it, a lot of the myths of the lost cause center around it. So it is an important, an important part of the battle to discuss for sure. Um, and the plan was, as I said before, Lee reasoned that if the Confederate flanks had been reinforced from the day before, um, like, or if the union flanks had been reinforced from the day before that the weak area may very well be at the center of the union line on cemetery Ridge, which is where Hancock second Corps um, are. And as we saw, Meade in the Council of War predicted that this would happen, so he knows he has to strengthen his center. And uh, what it was going to be is that Lee changed his plan and said Longstreet was going to command Pickett's Virginia Division of the First Corps, and there would be six brigades from A.P. Hill's Corps. 
and uh, Noah Andre Trudeau in his book Gettysburg: A Testing of Courage does a really good job of explaining how this all goes down, and he's really good at building the tension between Lee and Longstreet. To the point where, when I was reading it, I was actually getting angry. <laughs> so, like, how would you how would you describe that tension and like what and kind of how that dynamic played out? Well, ever since, like, to me. Like, right from day one at Gettysburg, you have Longstreet saying, we should do it this way, this will be better, and Lee is saying, nope, we can't do that. And in the movie Gettysburg, Lee says to Longstreet, I can't retreat, and Longstreet says, it's not a retreat, it's a deployment. We're going to try and get between them and Washington. And Lee just does not want to do that. So there's been this tension building between them, Um and Lee is not, he's got a plan in his head and he's not going to listen to anything else at all at this point. This is what he wants to do. And um, Longstreet says to him, I have been a soldier all my life. I have been with soldiers engaged in fights by couples, by squads, companies, regiments, divisions, and armies, and should know as well as anyone what soldiers can do. It is my opinion that no 15,000 men ever arrayed for battle can take that position. So he's basically saying, I know what I'm talking about, and it doesn't work. And I think at that point in Longstreet Mine, he's probably going back to where he was at Mary's Heights, watching the Union, just, you know, the brigades in um, wave after wave at the Battle of Fredericksburg just coming and get absolutely slaughtered. And I think he's realizing, wow, that's us. That's going to be us. Mm-hmm. There's that. Uh, you know, I think it's fairly often retold, and I, I th- some folks think it's apocryphal, or, but um, Longstreet has the would would say that he could tell when Lee's blood was up, and when his blood was up, he was going to go on the offensive, and there was no turning him back. And um, Longstreet would kind of say like he could tell when Lee's blood was up, it was just going to happen. Yeah. And in this particular case, I think he was very much trying to say like even you know even though his blood was up, so to speak try to talk him out of it. And and this was a very good example of how that just wasn't going to happen. Yeah. And that's what he says in his, in his memoirs, like Longstreet says that Lee at that point was impatient of listening and tired of talking and nothing was left but to proceed. And Longstreet goes on to say, never was I so depressed as upon that day with my knowledge of the situation, I could see the desperate and hopeless nature of the charge and the cruel slaughter it would cause. And I think in Lee's defense, though, I mean, he's been, he just coming off Chancellorsville, mm-hmm. uh, you know, which is being like where he basically overcomes the odds and ends up on the right end of the stick there. And his guys have been through a lot of fighting and they've had a lot of success. So, and in his eyes, he looks day one, you know, they almost had it. Day two, they were right there. So day three, they just need that final day that they're going to get it done like they've always had. Um, you know, and then I think he kind of had that that confidence, that success was almost a detriment to him going to that day probably as well from mm-hmm. a mentality standpoint. And the big thing that Lee is going into with this battle, this is his first battle without Jackson. And yep. he and Jackson had this kind of it was almost like this unspoken understanding or like ability to read each other. And you see the same thing in Grant and Sherman, like they have this ability to read each other and trust each other. And while Longstreet and Lee are very good friends, they, they don't have that at all. And I think there's some of that playing into it as well. 
Yeah, and I think that's an interesting what if, um, because I think a lot of times, a lot of folks are inclined to say, like, what if Jackson was in control of that core? Like, would they have broken through or won the battle? Mm -hmm. But what about the other side of that? Would Jackson have been able to talk Lee out of it? Would he have wanted to talk Lee out of it? Um, would would Lee have been able to read Jackson enough to um, to decide not to do it? And was their dynamic even like that? Because um, of course you, you you also have to realize these are you know there's ranks right <laughs> you know so like there's only so much you can do or say in a council of war with ranks involved and I think Longstreet probably pushed it to its limit and knew he pushed it to its limit mm-hmm. um, and would Jackson have even done that? Um, who knows? Uh, but I, 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 I like that kind of historical daydreaming, I guess, yeah. or, or getting into that hypothetical. Yeah, well, I think that, you know, discussing the what ifs, you know, I think it um, it helps you to understand the, the historical figures a little bit better, too. Like, you know, you're looking at, OK, well, here's how they behaved in this situation. What if they've been in that situation? Um, and it's just it's also interesting and fun to discuss, too. Um, like. And Jackson being at Gettysburg is a big what if of the Civil War for sure. Um, but then, you know, you have Longstreet who's just like, he can't do anything. He can't say anything. He's he's basically just resigning himself. And um, Trudeau and Trudeau's book was my main source for researching Pickett's Charge. Um, he weaves the story of Pickett's Charge using um, this correspondence between Longstreet and Edward P. Alexander, who was the Confederate artillerist. And in the hours leading up to Pickett's Charge, they're writing letters back and forth. And the letters are such that like, neither wants to make the call. And you can see them both struggling with it. And uh, Trudeau, if you haven't guessed already, he's very pro Longstreet. He's very much, you know, this, you know, he shouldn't be blamed for this. Um, so Longstreet clearly doesn't want it to happen. And Alexander's instructed to try and cripple the enemy with artillery. And then after that, the infantry column would attack and the art- artillery would assist where possible. So the first letter states, if the artillery fire does not have the effect to drive off the enemy or greatly demoralize them, then Longstreet would prefer the charge not be made. And he tells Alexander he'll rely on his judgment for that. And Alexander is not comfortable with that and doesn't want that judgment on on him. And Alexander basically says, it's okay because, you know, if it's Lee making the call, but I don't want to make the call to say that this charge is going to happen. And I think Longstreet is being uh, uh, trying to not get too vulgar. Uh, He's being a punk. I mean, it's like the coach coming. Well, I don't know if we should call this play. What do you think? And going to the captain, and like you call the play because the coach doesn't have enough courage to either uh, go against uh, defense or offensive coordinator. What I guess an offensive coordinator going to their quarterback. You make the call, and the quarterback's like a sophomore in the varsity team. And then because he doesn't have enough courage to stand up to the coach, that's how I view it. So. I think Longstreet's way out of line, putting that pressure on somebody else, <laughs> in my opinion. And I know you're going to try to def- to make this interesting. Um, I know for, by the, like the, the my facial expressions right now. Um, I think Longstreet, that was kind of a punk move. He had command. Why would you put somebody below you in an awkward position? 
If you don't agree with it, you go with it. You make the decision. Yeah. That's what you do when you're put in that position. I agree. It was an awkward position to put him in. I can't imagine what Longstreet's mindset was, though, when he's like, I, like he knows what's about to happen. And I think Alexander does, too. And um, Well, I, I think that's an interesting, um, just on, like, leadership dynamics and, like, there could have been a situation because we don't know, like, you know, obviously there's historic record on a lot of things, but you know, there's, there's dissent in every major decision, hopefully. Um, right. So like when Lee went to attack at Chancellorsville, which was a good example, Nick brought up, there's no real historic record that says like in that council of war or whatever, when they were talking about how they were going to do it, if somebody said like, Hey, here's the risk, I don't think it's that great of an idea because here's, here are the risks. And they ultimately decided to attack and it worked out. Like, all right, nobody, you know, nobody talks about that, right? Like that just gets lost because it worked, right? So like, um, I think that maybe there's a possibility that that, that dissent gets blown out of proportion because it didn't work, you know, like that. And I think the coaching is a good example. Like, mm-hmm. um, you know, when, when the head coach makes an ultimate decision, it's easy for the coordinator, the assistant to say like, man, don't look at me. I said we shouldn't do it. Um, Cause that kind of stuff comes up all the time, you know, mm-hmm. um, where, you know, any major decision, hopefully on your team, you have some dissent because if you don't, then you don't have a very effective team. Um, look at Lincoln um, and his, you know, Lincoln and Seward or Lincoln and his cabinet in general. Um, Lincoln and the Emancipation Proclamation, I think is a good example. Like they're around that in the cabinet room in this very heightened moment of drama. And you got all kinds of perspectives wait, don't do it, do it immediately. All that different stuff goes into play. And he decides we're going to do it this way, you know, November, and then it's going to be effective in January 1st. And that's how it's going to work. Um, That's a major decision. You had some dissent, but I, you know, obviously because it's so major, we know who dissented and who didn't, but I think Mm -hmm. probably every major decision made by Lee, by Mead, by Grant, by, you know, there had to be some dissent. And I think in this particular case, Longstreet was able to say, like, see, <laughs> like, I was right. Yeah. We should not have done that. Maybe there was some a situation where somebody could have done that on every bad decision. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like, you can look at all the generals that Lincoln fired. You know, no one really emerged saying, like, yeah, that was stupid. I told them not to do it. But maybe that's because there wasn't somebody saying that. Maybe that's why there's not a real distinguishable difference between the failures of Hooker and McClellan and, and Burnside, they're all just kind of trying to, you know, making decisions, however. So, mm-hmm. yeah, Nick, I think you bring, bring up a great point, though. Like, perhaps this is a particular case where Longstreet was able to use the advantage of hindsight to yeah. say, don't look at me. Yeah, and he, I do actually agree with that, too. There's probably, and he's writing this in his memoirs after as well. Um, but these are letters that were exchanged between the two of them as well. And um, like Alexander writes Longstreet back and says, like, it's going to take all of our available ammo to do this bombardment. And then he ends by saying, and even if this entire is entirely successful, it can only be so at a very bloody cost. So the two of them are basically saying this isn't going to work, but one of us like has to make the call. Well, and I think I really like bringing up that bloody cost part. Because that was, even if it had worked, even if they had won the Battle of Gettysburg, look at all of Grant's, you know, when you get into 1864, like 
the cost was what ended up really shifting the tides of the war much more so than the actual battleground and who mm-hmm. controlled what, you know? So like say they won the battle of Gettysburg and the casualties were about the same as they were. I don't know if they didn't have a real significant advantage. This is assuming that you're able to still defend yeah. Washington. Um, so may, you know, maybe the, the actual ground in Pennsylvania wasn't the victory as the number of resources and lives really, mm-hmm. That the Confederacy lost, yeah, um, and they would have lost it in victory. They may have lost more of it in victory, and ended up with the high ground. And if Meade was able to have a tactical retreat, you know, and they were able to defend Washington, maybe the outcome stays the same. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Like they're low, they're low on ammo at this point. So then, what can they possibly do? Like Alexander's saying, we like he can't do much more than what's what we've got here. And Longstreet responds to him saying that the infantry should only advance if the artillery has the desired effect. And that's basically to weaken the Union center line. And then Alexander responds to that and says, when our fire is at its best, I will advise General Pickett to advance. And And there it is. (laughs) That's. And Trudeau states that Lee never wavered in his belief that the assault he had ordered against the enemy center would succeed and he believed that his superb soldiers would cleave the Yankee army in twain. And he hoped the federal soldiers would lose their nerve and felt utterly confident that his own would press the attack all the way to Cemetery Ridge. And that goes back to what you said about Chancellorsville, Nick. Mm-hmm. That he's, you know, kind of riding off that. Like, And I think Fredericksburg, too, is playing into it. And... One Confederate officer said the tension on our troops has become great as well. So things are not obviously not so great on the Confederate side of things, but on the Union side of things, it's a completely different story. They're over there having a picnic lunch. Um, There was an invitation, like Trudeau talks about it, and he says there was an invitation extended to Winfield Hancock, who accepted. George Meade came down, and they were having this picnic lunch together. And the men are like, the soldiers are like laying around having naps as they're waiting for this bombardment to begin and it begins at one thirty, and it's one of the largest ones in the civil war with between 150 and 170 cannons and the army of the Potomac does not return any fire until about 15 minutes after they start because they're trying to save their ammo as well. Then and he stops returning fire, doesn't he? Don't they? Yes. Because to conserve their ammo. Which also throws the Confederates off because they feel like they're being relatively successful yep. with their bombardment when, in fact, they weren't. No, their bombardment goes right over the Union Center lines. And it actually does damage to where Meade has his headquarters um, at Leicester House, so he's forced to evacuate. And then another thing on this day, it is 87 degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah, I mean, that just had to be mind-boggling as a Union soldier. 150, 170 cannons yeah. going off all around the same time. Um, it had to be quite the scene. Uh, and then just to be laying there and then to see them flying over you, it just had to be fortunate as hell, too, uh, especially if you were in those front lines. Sucks if you were in the back where you thought you were safe, of course. But Yeah. Um, yeah, the size of the bombardment, like I'm reading a book right now by Carl... Or Carol rendered mm-hmm. uh, something to R. I can't remember it, but her big thing is kind of how get, uh, Gettysburg is remembered, specifically Pickett's charge, 
And she goes through like looking at all these different accounts that people have given. And the one constant that is there, there's like three constants, but the one um, that really stands out more than any others was just how large of an artillery bombardment it was. Um, and I, I think it probably had to be the largest of the war mm-hmm. to yep. be all fired at that one time like yep. that. Yep. So, it was the largest of the war. So we're talking about quite quite the artillery barrage being sent to Union Way. I can't imagine what the noise would have been like, like if you're a citizen of Gettysburg, like hearing that. And I think that bombardment went on from one thirty till about, I don't know, 2.30. Yeah, it was about an hour. That's crazy. And like, just at the side, the one thing that I've been thinking about, I was watching the movie Gettysburg on the weekend. How many of those people who worked with the artillerists were left deaf after the war? Well, probably a lot because it still happens now with modern technology and with, um, you know, taking some precautions when possible. So I would have to say quite a few. Yeah. Um, So at 2.20 p.m., a message is sent to Pickett that he must advance. And um, Longstreet um, said that or Alexander said the long street said, I believe it will fail. I do not see how it can succeed. And I would not even, I would not make it even now, but generally has ordered it and expects it. And long and Alexander just recalled that the silence after was almost embarrassing to be standing there with long street as he's saying this. Um, so today in, there's a different thinking of Pickett's charge. It's starting to be called the Pickett Pettigrew tremble charge because of the three commanders that, were were involved with it. I mean, the three division commanders, and it's actually not fifteen thousand soldiers; it's twelve twelve thousand five hundred, and they advance towards the Union Center. But as they're doing this, there's this fierce artillery from Cemetery Hill and beyond Little Round Top coming down on them as well. So the Union are bombarding them. And uh, real quick here, while we mm-hmm. mentioned the change in name, um, and that's kind of what the second book I've been reading about this is focused in on. Uh, because Pickett's charge, basically what happened is after the war, the Union talked about it as a collective whole in Union newspapers. That's kind of where you first get your news. And, you know, part of their job is to get it back as quick as they can in the South newspapers. So not everything was 100% accurate. And so the Union talked about it always as like a collective whole, a victory, didn't get into individuals. While the Confederacy, I guess, you know, they're looking at it more closely, trying to tell a story something to make it heroic or have some glory behind it. And some of the first and Richmond became kind of the main hub of civil war news at this time. Richmond being in Virginia definitely had a Virginia slant. So this author is making the case that Richmond started the newspaper accounts and those accounts would be trickled down to the other Confederate States. And they took a focus on Pickett because Pickett's leading Virginians during this time. So Pettigrew and Tremble, you know, the North Carolinians, the Alba- Albamians, I don't know what the hell they were called, uh, and the Floridians uh, are kind of left out. And this goes on for years mm-hmm. to the point where, you know, they have reunions and the North Carolina uh, soldiers who are involved are very bitter about this um, and just kind of, you know, trying to buck that stereotype that, you know, it wasn't that this great thing. Even Pickett, it gets kind of put on a pedestal, and Pickett does not have this, you know, polished Civil War record at all either. So, and especially towards the end of the war, he makes some major blunders. Um, But we don't know that 
because of how it was being this third day almost gets used as this, you know, symbol of what it means to be an ultimate soldier. Mm-hmm. You know, charge, you don't give up, you go despite the obstacles. Even though surrendering was a huge part of the Civil War. And so it's kind of funny how the legend of Pickett's Charge has grown. And finally, that's starting to be beaten back a little. Um, because it wasn't just Pickett and the Virginians going. It was other, you know, Confederate soldiers mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't just Hancock's second wait in there. You know, you had yep. the Vermont guys, which I'm sure you're going to mention here in a second. Um, so, you know, when you, when you talk about war, you talk about chaos, which makes it hard to write about. Um, so a lot of times you try to create these narratives or simplify them, which then leaves people out. Exactly. Yeah. And they, they, they zero in on people like, you know, Hancock is, he's a focal point of the movie Gettysburg. And then you have these Vermont troops that are getting left out. Um, and Chamberlain, who Chamberlain is a true hero, don't get me wrong, but Warren gets cast, as, you know, Warren kind of gets yeah. pu- pushed aside. And to me, he is like one of the, you know, he is one of the unsung heroes of the Battle of Gettysburg for what he did. And it's the same with Pickett's Charge. You know, you, it's not just Virginians, it's it's other troops too from other states that are that are doing this and it's just kind of it's gettysburg is one of those i think it's unique in civil war battles in that all these not they're not myths but just these stories have grown up so much that other things get get left behind that are just as important yeah i think it's um you know part of it is just you know, I think it's the narrative, but it's also like, you know, media mm-hmm. too. like Ken Burns talks about Chamberlain's. I, I'll never forget. He calls it an unlikely textbook maneuver that mm-hmm. saved the union and maybe saved the whole country, whatever, or saved the union cause um, in the intro to the Civil War documentary, not in the Gettysburg chapter or in the 1863, you know, uh, episode, but like in the intro. Um, so he kind of singles him out and, you know, obviously he deserves a little bit of, of credit for it for sure. But, um, yeah, I think you, you both make very good points about how, um, you know, we focus in on these compelling narratives because there's so many thousands of stories in the war from the, you know, and from the just privates all the way up to the, to the enlisted officers through it up to the generals, um, so like, you know, how those narratives come out. And I think a lot of it is like, well, what's interesting? Cause Pickett mm-hmm. as a person is just pretty darn interesting. Mm-hmm. Chamberlain is too, you know, yep. this, you know, he's, you know, from Maine and he's like a kind of like this, you know, academic college person and he, you know, and he goes to war and he becomes a hero and, you know, it's like, it's a really good story for the war. Pickett has this huge personality wants glory so badly, or at least so the story goes, and it may be apocryphal, but um, you know, he's this kind of becomes this character based probably at least in part, in fact. Um, And he, I think is, as close to the South gets to the political appointments that Lincoln had Lincoln, you know, had a lot of appointments to generalships for people Mm -hmm. who really didn't deserve them or earn them. But um, appeasing political groups in different parts of the North. Um, you know, his political appointments are a lot of good stuff written about him, and they're very, there's a lot of them, and they're, you know, 
pretty interesting, but I think Pickett is kind of one of those in a way too, um, because he's got this big personality and he reaches this and he just wants that glory. Mm-hmm. And that's an interesting story. And, and, you know, I think that that's kind of how it, you know, kind of how it emerged into what it was or what it is. Um, when obviously it, it, it's not quite so simple. Um, and I think that, um, I'm glad that kind of historians are taking that counter narrative a little bit and saying, you know, this whole lost cause thing is like tied so much to, to this one mm-hmm. part of this one battle. Obviously it's a major part of a major battle, but maybe there was a little bit more to it than that. Yeah. There, there's more stories. There's definitely more stories to it. And you know, the, one of the reasons it's so tied to this lost cause is because it's the Confederate high watermark and there's the memorial to it at Gettysburg, you know, where Lou Armstrong, Lou or general Lou Armstead, he, he and his troops made the furthest advance and there was hand-to-hand combat and um, he ends up getting wounded and dying a few days later. But, you know, there's that too, that plays into this lost cause. You know, you know, something's funny about all this too, is that these picket, because these, you know, the people in Pickett's division will become very big on pushing this narrative. Mm-hmm. But the one guy that they won't turn on, that everybody wants them to is Longstreet. So they will always stay true to Longstreet that he was a good general. So yep. you got that, Mary, for you. Good. <laughs> well, and I think Pickett's just Pickett's story in general is just like mythic in many ways. Yes. Um, he, he did spend some time in Springfield, Illinois. Yeah. Um, and then a legend emerged that he got his appointment to West Point from Abraham Lincoln, which is of course not true. It didn't happen, but like there's thoughts out there that his wife was like telling this story that Lincoln was the person. Cause you know, you need a, you need a recommendation from a um, member of Congress to, to go to any of well, the, the only military Academy at that time um, at West point. Um, it didn't happen, you know, but man, that makes for an interesting story, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that, you know, trying to sift through, not necessarily. I don't think anything's like false about Pickett's charge, but I think the exclusion of people is certainly happened, um, and many battles would certainly hear. Yeah. Oh, Pickett. Just on a side note, he also lived in Canada for a while after the Civil War. How about that? Yeah. Godridge. No. All right. Real quick for our Canada break. Guess who? By according to the rumor mill, is in Rockford, Illinois, right now. Drake. Really? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. His plane is in Rockford. At least there's a big party for NBA champion Fred VanVleet. So, well, us Canadians uh, know each other. Yeah, of course. Why uh, all, am I not all there? Of, all of Canada knows knows each other. <laughs> so, um, so Pickett spent time in Canada, and Drake spent time at least a little bit in Rockford. There Illinois, we go. So. Um, so on the union side of things, Hancock ends up getting wounded as just given. And obviously there's others that get wounded too. Um, but so Hancock, when he gets wounded, says that this, he needs to send a message to Meade saying that the troops under his command have repulsed the enemy and gained a great victory. Um, so near the end of the charge, Meade is riding along Cemetery Ridge and he's told the attack has been repulsed and he's very surprised, but happy and he now holds the field, and Gettysburg is 
a Union victory. And so Pickett's charge will result in 1,500 Union casualties. The Confederate casualty rate is 50%. 6,555 troops will die making that trip. Well, not die, but like wounded. They will die. They will be taken prisoner um, making that charge. And... Uh, Trim and there's a high casualty rate among the commanders. Trimble Trimble loses a leg. Pettigrew's wounded and will later be killed in the retreat to Virginia. Lou Armstead will die of his wounds, um, and Pickett loses most of his division as well. And that is basically the the end of the Battle of Gettysburg. Um, but you have this aftermath too that you're dealing with. Um, so estimated casualties are 51,000, 23,049 are Union, 28,063 are Confederate. And one of the bigger controversies, and believe me, it's still controversial today. It's still a what's called, someone called it a Gettysburg hot take. Because I just randomly tweeted about it yesterday. I was like, I'm pro mead. And I will defend him, and I think he made the right decision in not pursuing Lee. It is still very divided, as I discovered. And there's still discussions going on about it from this, from this one tweet. Um, but basically what happened is rain fell for a few days after the battle um, ended, so that kept Lee in Pennsylvania, so you would think that Meade would go after him and you know, kind of end things right there. There's some skirmishing July 11th to 13th. And July 14th was when there was going to be an offensive, but Meade discovered that Lee had left. And so Halleck writes Meade, the enemy should be pursued and cut up wherever he may have gone. I need hardly to say to you that the escape of Lee's army without another battle has created great dissatisfaction in the mind of the president. You, you know, I, I think that that that's such a key part of this whole campaign mm-hmm. um, that I think often gets missed. And I, I had a professor way, way back in undergrad. I took a course called American Military History. And my professor, who is Dr. Blackwell at Northern Illinois University, who um, was a Civil War scholar and specifically his area of expertise was the Illinois 7th Cavalry, uh, which obviously was um, – important and was at Gettysburg. Um, but his, his position, which I looked a lot into, um, about, um, the battle was Lee's retreat. It wasn't just a matter of like Lee retreating. And I think a lot of people simplify it to Lee retreats. Meade doesn't go after him. Um, retreating. I think people like have this idea of like, playground war games or whatever like retreating is not like run away you know and everybody go like it's a very tactical difficult thing to do because you're vulnerable and his position was that the that lee's retreat from gettysburg was a masterstroke of generalship because he was able to defend the rear of the confederate army he was able to kind of um, hide a little bit of the direction they were going in like because retreating is a difficult thing to do um, and he said, yeah, yeah, it had me like really given up their position and really gone full bore after him, perhaps it would have been different, but it was a really masterful retreat. Mm-hmm. Um, and he kind of looked at it as if you're looking for, you know, a mid 19th century example of how to do an effective retreat, Gettysburg was the one, cause you're in enemy territory, you're way up North in Pennsylvania. And he was able to 
fend off whatever forces were coming after him and kind of fight off that. Um, because I think that's often overlooked that retreating is not easy. No, you know, you're demoralized, you've lost, you're, you're, you're moving back. None of your enlisted men or soldiers or of any kind want to retreat and you've got to protect yourself. Um, and it's, you know, it's complex. Uh, and Lee did a really good job of that in this, in the Gettysburg campaign particularly. And, you know, and I think another piece of that is that it's not as if the union didn't suffer a whole bunch of casualties themselves. Mm -hmm. It's not as if they hadn't just gone through three days of fighting in, you know, hellish conditions. Like they're, it's not that they're tired. (laughs) Like they've been ripped apart. They, you know, holding a defensive position like that isn't easy either. Um, So I don't think it's quite as simple as like they're running away. Go after them. No, it, it's, it's, you know, it, like it, it's absolutely not, you know, like Meade's AO, like Army of the Potomac's been cut up and like Reynolds is gone. Like he's, he's dead and he was one of Lee's most trusted corps commanders and Hancock's wounded. Sickles, I mean, you know how I feel about Sickles. <laughs> <laughs> He's a murderer. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Really? He likes to create gaps in the Union line. Um, He's wounded, too. So the the AOP's broken. Meade's probably going on very little sleep. He's had the worst first week on the job. Well, then Lincoln, too. Lincoln's looking at his map. Mm -hmm. And there are Pennsylvania troops that they raise when Lee makes an invasion. So Lincoln's looking at the map. He's going, well, you have these guys available, too, that could put some pressure on them. But these are, like, literally, like, just a state militia. They're they're not worth much of anything. And then there were some other troops. I can't think of the right location who was commanding them at the moment. But So I think part of Lincoln's problem, he's looking at this map. He sees Meade. He sees these other troops there that can maneuver in, put some pressure on them. But they're really worthless, mm-hmm. the other two groups, because they don't have the experience that Meade's troops do. On top of that, Meade was already struggling with recruitment um, time because a lot of these guys, like the Vermont guys, I believe, who will actually come in and slow the left flank of the Confederates, I think some of those guys were like, they were literally days away from their enlistment time being over. So you had that being there. So, you know... um, I was reading one account where they, they put some blame on Lincoln there for not having a better, doing a better job of your duration of enlistment there and making it so short where these guys were leaving at time of need, which also just weakens Meade's uh, troops that he had available to him on top of all that. So I think it's maybe a little bit of Lincoln, you know, being that he is a politician, mm-hmm. not truly understanding this full military situation. Yeah. At the same time. Lincoln's got to be anxious. One of the few times that good fortune seems to go, you have them up in Northern Territory. You could trap them in there. You have them. That's probably the war. Or, you know, especially with Vicksburg on it added to that. I mean, yes, it drags on, but there's virtually, you know, Lee's such the symbol of what the South was. So I think you could see it from both sides why they felt the way they did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if, if we could stay on that point for a second, the, the, the pursuit and Lincoln's decision to reassign Meade and bring Grant in, perhaps that was more of a political decision than a lot of folks think. Because militarily, I think history is, is kind, of, kind of kind of Meade really couldn't have done 
much more than he did. Mm-hmm. You know, kind of on points we've already made about the true, you know, the fact that they had just fought for three days, inexperience. Um, but Lincoln can show he's got high standards. He's whole, you know, he wants, you know, he thinks that they could have crushed him there, maybe, or at least ostensibly he thinks that. But like Grant, and you know, we'll talk about Grant and Vitsburg in, you know, future episodes for sure. But like when you take a town, when you take a fort, like you've won, there's nothing else to do there. Like, you know, he had thousands, tens of thousands of prisoners of war in that case. So like um, the victory that Meade had versus the victory that Grant had, I think is maybe there's a political angle to that to say um, like just the victory's not enough. This is what I'm doing. You can see what I'm doing. Cause you know, obviously we're on the eve of the 1864 election in many ways. Um, so perhaps there was a political angle to, to firing Meade, even though they're, you know, arguably, perhaps there wasn't much he could have done had he pursued Lee, um, especially the point that we kind of started the show with or the episode with. The position that Meade held was so strong. Mm-hmm. Like, if you were to pursue Lee's army, you're giving up that position. Now, obviously, you can perhaps retreat back to it, but you don't know for sure if you're going to be able to retreat back to the exact same position based on how the whole thing shakes out. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of ways to defend Meade's decisions there. And I think there's a possibility that Lincoln kind of understood that and still realized like, this is going to be best for, not for him politically, but for the cause politically to say, we could have crushed him there. Mm -hmm. This isn't enough. We need more aggression. But I think overall too, I think Lincoln and Grant, but Lincoln particularly understood more than anyone uh, that, Inflicting casualties upon the South, making them use their resources, unfortunately, in human lives, but also in ammunition and just just carrying on the war was the victory as well, probably as much as the land. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I think you see a turning point there as well, where after Gettysburg and and they just weren't able to sustain the losses time after time. And I think Lincoln understood, like, there, there's only so much time that they can sustain these losses, and the Union could. The Union could, you know, it's a really terrible way to look at the war, but the Union was able to sustain huge losses at Gettysburg, and they were fine. Yeah. They, they, they really were, as far as resources go, both in human lives and in, in material. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. And, like, Lincoln writes me the letter and never sends it, which shows his how he kind of was like, okay, I need to go away and think about this for a second. And, you know, in this letter, Lincoln says, I do not believe you appreciate the magnitude of the misfortune involved in Lee's escape. He was within your easy grasp. The war will be prolonged indefinitely. Your golden opportunity is gone and I am distressed immeasurably because of it. He said, White says, it's a very strongly worded letter from a commander in chief to the commander of the army of the Potomac, but he doesn't send it. And I think that shows what a good, empathetic person Lincoln is. And it shows, like, that human side of us. We've all had moments where we have lost our temper and said things we don't mean. No way. I don't know. I've never lost my temper never, like that. neither have I. I'm an angel. I'm not temperamental at all. Yeah. Bullshit. Well, yeah, Anyone exactly bullshit. Had, I will call bullshit on myself for that. Yeah. <laughs> um. Like, of course, he's upset with Meade that he doesn't pursue, but I think he eventually saw why. Like, he's looking at, like, Meade's been in this job for less than a week, and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, shit, I got to do a battle. And 
Meade's probably going on very little sleep. He's missing some of his key core commanders, which you're not going to throw new core commanders in there that you don't know how they're work that you don't know how you're going to work with them. You know, he trusted Hancock. He was very good friends with Reynolds and Reynolds is not coming back obviously because he's been killed, but in Hancock's wounded and has to recover. But if you're putting people in there that you don't know as well, you don't know how it's going to turn out. So risk benefit Meade weighs it pretty well. And I think he makes the best decision possible. And Lincoln states a few days later, um, I am now profoundly grateful for what was done without criticism for what was not done. General Meade has my full confidence as a brave and skillful officer and a true man. Um, So when Grant does come to the East, you know, Meade is still holding his position in in the army of the Potomac, Grant is just there for, you know, to be close to Washington, but he's not in Washington because he doesn't want that political side of things. Well, I think the fact that Meade's cap shows that Lincoln and Grant both knew that he did not do the country a disservice yep. with Gettysburg. Now, I think the reason Grant's chosen and the reason it was the right decision over Meade, because I think Grant had more of a sense of urgency, whereas Meade was more likely to do some. I, it's kind of like me took a moment to relax yeah. where you're not going to see that from Grant. You know, he's going to hold mm-hmm. like the saying goes, like he was like this dog that just went, let go yeah, the bull, bite him, yeah. and you can't shake him off. Whereas me would be that dog that would bite you and then maybe retreat, regroup mm-hmm. and yeah. then come at you, uh, which then gives Lee because he's clever enough and he's good enough to get away. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's a little bit of both that Meade obviously didn't do the country a disservice. Could no. he have a little bit more urgency afterwards? Yeah, I, I think you could make that argument, but I think it's also very understandable to understand why he did not. Yeah. Does Grant serve a better purpose than Meade in finishing the war? I think so. Um, but yeah. Grant with Meade is the best combination that yes. you could have for the Army of the Potomac. And then I think that's what we see the second half of the war. Yeah. Grant being made Lieutenant general. And I mean, Grant did have a choice. Grant, you know, Sherman wanted Grant to stay in the Western theater, but Grant wanted to go East so he could be close to Washington, but chose to make his headquarters with the army, the army. Of the he probably wanted to get away from that psycho Sherman for a while. Is probably. My <laughs> like, damn, probably. dude, he's angry all the time. He's pissy. Hates God. reporters. I need to get away from this dude. He thinks I'm his bestie. Not really. Yeah, not really. That's my theory. No. <laughs> Gotta get rid of, away from this redheaded yeah. stepchild. I'm sitting this one out. <laughs> Them's fighting words, Nick. <laughs> I do. Th- I mean, you know, and not to get too much ahead of ourselves because we'll talk about Vicksburg at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, I don't think it can be underemphasized how important Vicksburg was, and sometimes oh. it gets overshadowed by yeah. Gettysburg. But the entire Western theater changes dramatically once Vicksburg falls. I'm not saying you don't need Grant necessarily, but like it, it just changed the whole dynamic where, Mm -hmm. you know, it was just a huge, 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 significantly important victory for the union that really enabled, you know, the, the, you know, Sherman to really do well, I guess, in the Western theater. Um, And I think that that, that as much as anything allowed Lincoln to bring, grant north or at least or north or east however you want to say it mm-hmm. um because no longer did he need him in the west as much because i think 
you know, the, I don't want to say the West was won, so to speak. I don't want to say the West was won when Viscovers fell, but for the, for the most part, it was you know you cut off so many resources by controlling the Mississippi River, mm-hmm. um, and you've really Vicksburg, as much as any other battle, really split it up into two wars. You know, or, or really defined the two theaters because they were so separate. Um, and just to kind of see how it plays out over the next year and a half or so, um, I think it's really kind of interesting how like they kind of almost fell at similar rates. Um, but the fact that like, I think one of the most, I don't want to say beautiful, one of the most, um, I think just, um, just, it's hard to put it into words, but like the fact that Gettysburg and Vicksburg happened on the same day, um, and were so significant is one of the things about the war, the civil war that just makes it so compelling, you mm-hmm. know, like there's the drama and the, the narratives around all of it. Um, that this third day of Gettysburg, cause Gettysburg, what if it ended on the first day? What if it was an Antietam, which it was just a total bloodbath and they threw everything they had and they, they actually were much more aggressive with the attacks on day one, you know? You know, but but the fact that they happened on the same day, it was right around Independence Day. Yeah, and, you know, like man, like it's just the drama that's there just kind of writes itself, and and I think that they, it's just so. It's that I think that's what just makes it such an interesting and fun war to really study. And in that particular day, um, I think you can make an argument is probably or could be. You certainly can make an argument it's the most significant single day in American history. Yeah. Yeah, I I completely agree, and it's you know, but like I mean, Vicksburg is obviously the more, um, and I know we're definitely going to do an episode about Vicksburg. Um, definitely the more decisive victory, but Gettysburg is that moral victory that the Union needs um, at this point, and I mean, it's a good moral victory because Gettysburg is so close to where the newspaper, like the media, is. It reaches Washington quicker. So that the you know the people can have that that good news that there has been a, a victory achieved there. Mm-hmm. And this isn't a Vicksburg episode, but I think we look at the the gallantry of the people in Pickett's charge as you know, certainly they were brave. But imagine being part of a siege. Oh yeah, and like going without food. And knowing that you're going, like, they knew they were going to lose. Mm-hmm. And fighting, you know, obviously their cause was horrible and misguided and, you know, all those other things. But, like, when you're talking about bravery and gallantry and, and you know, if you really want to hold on to that lost cause thing, look at Vicksburg. You know, like, they they, they endured as much sacrifice as, as anybody else. So, mm-hmm. um, such, you know, this episode's on the third day of Gettysburg, but that day in general was just so, so important yeah. um, because those two things happened, even though it was less climactic, I guess um, they decided to surrender Vicksburg because it was July 4th. Yes. And they thought they would get better terms that day. Yeah. So like, yeah. you know, it just was very much based on that, but still the fact that, that they fell on the same day is just, just such, it's just one of those things from the war that just is just so cool. Yeah. I think and it makes it just so compelling. Yeah, I agree. And with that, we are getting close to time for our episode. So we need to do our of the people by the people. So who wants I'm to good. go first? I can go. You, okay, go, Nick. 
Real quick, uh, you know, the union did Pickett's Charge before they did. It's called Fredericksburg, so. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Uh, I am going to, we have three new reviews since we last recorded. We are at 46, so Rail Splitters, remember, for our 100th anniversary, all we ask for our is... Our 100th 50- anniversary? <laughs> We are super old. old. We are so old. <laughs> we've been doing this for again. so long. We're actually Civil War veterans. That's we how long we've been at this. And I was a nurse in the Civil War. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you know, bust my balls ain't going to get any fans for you guys. That's why I'm everybody's favorite rail splitter. Despite the fa- you know, the one review I'm not going to read that was done on Facebook where hey. they said Mary was the heart and soul. I'm not reading that one. <laughs> that one was uh, I'll read that one on, in the next episode, Nick. Yeah, that was spot on, by the way. <laughs> These three are coming from iTunes, uh, not Stitcher. I'm really throwing shade at that listener. I apologize. That's one of my uh, friends. <laughs> uh, this one was from Sunday. Firebird3131. Five stars. Discovered this podcast a few months ago and have grown to enjoy the information presented in an informal, conversational style. All right. This one from Tuesday. From Ben Z. I don't know if he wants me to say his last name, so we'll keep it at Ben Z. Very entertaining and insightful. Five stars. I just found this podcast is very enjoyable. Nick and Mary do a great job going over the ins and outs of the battles. Well, Ben, there's a third one, buddy, and he's back this episode. So you're going to have to update that review. Actually, you know what? Let's <laughs> do another review and then make sure you throw Jeremy's name in there. Uh, but that was five stars. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Firebird3131, and from JDYB1453. Uh, five stars, fun podcast. Hosts, plural, are obviously passionate about Lincoln and Civil War history. They share their knowledge in a manner that holds your attention. All five-star bangers. Woo! Remember, if you want to uh, be our friend, give us a five-star review. And no matter how great or terrible you are, you will be our friend. Um, if you want to badmouth us, give us five stars and then type whatever you want. And I will read it on air or on tape that will be sent out there. You know, <laughs> all right. <laughs> Hopefully I gave you all enough time to find yours. Yes, I have mine. So mine comes to us from Jim Miller. He's a frequent poster in our real splitter on our real splitter Facebook page. Nick, you'll be happy to know that he, um, wow. bought some more drinkware. So dude, two shot glasses and a mug. I'm going to need shot glass. I'm going to get off the wagon and start drinking again if this and mug conversation continues to grow. One of them is a Abraham Lincoln mug. And I have to say, for our last episode of Gettysburg, this is the mug that I chose. All right, Reynolds. John like Reynolds. George Pickett. <laughs> yes. Yeah, George Pickett. No. Anyway, that's mine. Jim Miller, thank you so much for buying more mugs and other drink paraphernalia. Yeah, you can find us on Teespring, the Real Sweater Podcast. Actually, he he posted uh, he he Jim actually I should um, say yeah in Jim response bought, to me actually yeah yeah he so, said yeah. hey Nick I have a Real Sweater mug so thank you Jim. You know Jim that's the only mug you need in your collection actually you might want to get an extra one so you have one for home and work. You can never have enough mugs. <laughs> All money for those goes straight in my pocket. <laughs> Literally, literally literally tens of cents. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, I'm a little bit off my game uh, since I haven't been on the show in a while, so I did not come prepared with a uh, social media post, but I do just want to take a minute to thank uh, everybody for for listening and uh, continuing on. I, those reviews meant a lot to me, and Mary and Nick have done a great job with the show, and I'm super happy to be back. This has been a super fun hour or so, so um, I'm I'm back 100. Uh, percent And we'll next episode I'll fill you in on kind of what I've been doing during my time away, uh, which certainly has been busy, um, and uh, kind of what the summer is going to hold for us. Um, but I'm really excited to approach that hundredth episode and to kind of see see how the show continues to progress and to grow. So I just wanted to I guess my my contribution to this section of the show is just for me to say thank you. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. Yes. And yeah, get ready. 100th episode. Start yeah. booking your hotels down in Springfield around Labor Day. So um, come out. Mary will buy you drinks. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> Considering the, the Canadian dollar is super shitty right now. So. <laughs> Take that I'm just going to throw this out there. I did check today, and it's been uh, since I kind of took a step back from the show. I hadn't checked it, and I checked today. Like we've said, the and this is this sounds like a shameless plug for our merch, and I'm not doing that at all. Um, if you buy a T-shirt or a coffee mug or whatever from the Rail Splitter Teespring store, um, there's like a very, 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 very small amount of money, like that would come back to the show for all of the orders that we've had, and we've had quite a few. Um, we've had $29 above the cost for us. So we have $29 worth of bar tabs for any of rail splitter. Anybody <laughs> in rail splitter nation wants to join us in Springfield. The first $29 are on rail splitter nation. And of course we'll buy you a drink beyond that as well. Um, but just so you know, that's my way of saying like, we're not really profiting from this, like shameless plugs of like buyer coffee mugs. Like we get like, a quarter when you buy those, wish that quarter is going to go right back into real splitter nation. Uh, obviously not to our pockets, but uh, thank you. Um, what we can't put a price tag on is you getting the word out there. So we appreciate you getting the word out, but um, yes, uh, that hundredth episode is going to be super, super fun. We are looking forward to it very much. So I think that concludes our episode about Gettysburg. So until next time, keep walking the world with malice toward none and with charity for all, and we will see you again soon.